Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pop. My name is Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Every two weeks, Rustin and I get together to discuss topics in ecology, natural history, and evolution. And this week, we've decided to discuss plants because we haven't been talking about plants enough, and they're way too important for us to ignore for this long, really. We have neglected plants a lot. And I was a little iffy at first, but you know, the more I read, the more I'm like, okay, there are cool plants. Oh, I've known there were cool plants. It's just that like when we would talk about new topics and new themes, plants weren't the first thing that came to mind for me, which I guess makes sense on a lot of levels. You know, they just kind of sit there most of the time, even though a lot of them are remarkable and do incredible things. You just don't think about them as much. You know, then they don't seem to be as active for a lot of people. Yeah, and some things, like, I think they don't always translate as well as in a podcast format. So, like, animals, like, you can kind of describe what they are or what they're doing, but a plant is like, oh, you know, it's a plant. The green kind with the leaves and the flowers. Yeah, exactly. Like, a plant is definitely lends itself more to a visual medium. Its structure and its flowers can really be more accurately captured. You can't really describe them as well over a podcast. But hell, we're going to give it a go anyways. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to try our best, man. We're going to try our best. (laughs) All right. So I think I'm up first. Yes, you are. Go for it. So today I'm going to be talking about a specific type of pitcher plant. Are you familiar with these? Pitcher plants? Yes. Okay. So just as an overview for those of you who don't know, there are many different types of carnivorous plants. I was surprised with how many there are. There are a whole lot of them. Actually, I almost did my topic on pitcher plants, too, so it's a good thing I didn't. Oh, I picked a specific pitcher plant. I'll get to it, though. I almost also picked a specific pitcher plant. We might have picked the same. Okay. I didn't actually pick a pitcher plant. Let me be clear about that. Okay, but it could have been close. Yes. So carnivorous plants, this has evolved independently at least seven times, likely more. And there are some debated to be partially carnivorous or in the process of evolving to be carnivorous. There's a lot of gray areas to this, but we can say at least seven different times for sure. Carnivorous plants evolve these predatory capabilities because they live in areas with either low nitrogen or low phosphorus. So a lack of these key nutrients causes them to obtain these from living animals. Right, right. So these environments would typically either be a bog where the soil is very waterlogged, acidic, and low in nutrients, or in tropical rainforests where there's just so much competition between plants that they kind of have to find their own source instead of taking it from the soil. And of these plants, the pitcher is a common trap type. A pitcher plant is essentially just a jar-like container where small animals fall inside, they get trapped, drown, and they're slowly digested over time. This has also evolved independently a number of times, meaning that all the pitcher-esque plants are not closely related necessarily. It just happens to work. So how many different families of pitcher plant are there? I know of at least two which I'll mention. However, there's some evidence of bromeliads being carnivorous, just a couple species. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's others that are just kind of nestled in, like only one species of plant evolved this in this genus or family. But typically we think of two main ones. Okay, so, but do the phenotypes of these different pitcher plant families look very similar? Like, is this just a really excellent example of convergent evolution? No, they're actually, so it's still a pitcher, 
but they're kind of designed in two different ways. So I'll just mention them now. Of the two large clades of plants, like I said, there are others that share the name pitcher plant. In North America, you can find plants in the genus Saracenia. These guys go straight from the ground, kind of like a clarinet going into the air, and they live in bog-like environments. So if you live in North America, you might have seen these before. Hell, if you've gone to Lowe's, they probably have one in the plant section. I, I know I've at least gotten one in the past as a kid. It did not live long. I did know how to take care of it. But they're not super rare. I don't even know if those are for sale. They might just be there to like combat the fly problem at Lowe's. <laughs> <laughs> they just they can't be bothered to do anything else with it just toss out a pitcher plant yeah, exactly it's a really lazy way of combating the issue cool thing about these plants is they can actually be found all the way up into canada wow okay yeah which is a much bigger range than i thought i thought they would only be in kind of like the warmer southeast states like florida carolinas no no they go up pretty far yeah they seem to be pretty cold hardy don't they yeah actually you can grow them here in maryland well, yeah, if you can grow them in Canada, yeah, I well, hope so. No, no reason. <laughs> that was a dumb comparison, I guess. Okay, the other main group of pitcher plants are the genus Nepenthes. And these guys grow on the ground or in trees, and they're more vine-like in nature. So their pitchers at, are at the end of a long tendril off of a leaf. So whereas the Saracenia in North America grows straight from the ground, and they're in boggy areas, Nepenthes grow in tropical forests, and they're more viney. They can climb things. Okay, so if I'm picturing this correctly, the North American variety is more like, the, the pitcher is more built out of the stalk of the plant, whereas the tropical varieties are more built out of the leaves of the plant. Do I Am I picturing that correctly? So I don't know because the leaves are modified in so many different ways that I don't know if it's a stalk. That might be one giant leaf. I'm not 100% sure. But yes, I guess you could say that. It's almost the entire pitcher just coming straight out of the ground and the North American ones, whereas the ones in the other parts of the world, there's still a plant with leaves and then there's a tendril at the end and then there's the pitcher. Got it. So in tropical varieties, one plant can have several different pitchers then. Oh, well, a pitcher plant of Saracenia in North America, they can have multiple pitchers as well. They just kind of grow up like blades of grass. Okay, but they're still all connected to the same plant. Yeah, they're still all connected at the base, like in the root system, but they'll be spread out a little. Okay, I gotcha. Yes, so today I will be focusing on a specific species of the Nepenthes, and this one is called Nepenthes loei. All right. You know this one? I don't, but I think I might know where this is going. <laughs> okay. So what makes these pitcher plants so special is much like Megamind deciding he didn't want to be a villain anymore, these guys woke up one day and said, hey, you know, I've spent the past few million years evolving to be carnivores, but I don't want to do that anymore. And instead, they became living toilets. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is where this is going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I almost talked about this. <laughs> really? Yes. Okay. That's another bullet dodged. It really is. This is exactly where I was going to go with pitcher plants. <laughs> <laughs> so let me backtrack a little first. Nepenthes, these are the old world tropics is where they're found. So Asia, Indonesia, and some parts of Africa, I believe just Madagascar. 
The typical Nepenthes plants grow several long tendrils, each with an upright pitcher at the end. And the pitcher is kind of shaped like a tall glass with waxy ridges along the rim and a flat lid over top that can help keep out unwanted material and also help keep prey animals trapped inside. Pitchers themselves can range in size from a few inches to almost about a foot tall and six inches wide. There's some real big ones. Wow, yeah. A lot of variety there. Now, as I mentioned, these guys are carnivores. And I've heard it said they are not insectivores, they are carnivores. They are not eating purely insects, they're eating whatever lands in there. Okay. I have read some people fiercely defend that they are not insectivores, they are carnivores. (laughs) So I feel obligated to mention it. So these act as kind of pitfall traps where animals will fall in, sometimes lured with a sweet smell, drown because they aren't able to climb the waxy sides, eventually die, and then the plants will slowly digest the animal over a period of time. And this gives them the nutrients they need to grow in the environments where they can't get it, mainly nitrogen, but sometimes also phosphorus and other nutrients. And like I said, when I say animals, I mean animals, not just insects. In addition to eating various invertebrates, such as ants, beetles, spiders, snails, flies, and scorpions, They've also been documented eating frogs, lizards, and even one case of a rat, but that might be questionable. Why is it questionable? That will come up later, but just put a pin in that one. Okay. I'm looking forward to hearing more about this rat that gets defeated by a pitcher plant. <laughs> now, the Penthes Loey is much different compared to his carnivorous colleagues. So this guy is found in the mountains of Borneo, and again, there are a bunch of other species there. It became known to modern science in 1851 when a British colonial administrator and naturalist, Hugh Lowe, discovered the plant during a hike up Mount Kinabalu. Let's go with that. And the plant is named after him, of course. Most organisms are usually named after the random middle-aged white man who discovered them. Fair. When you get into the realm of bugs and plants, there's just so many. Name it after whatever the hell you want. Yeah, I actually, I know that there are at least a few different actors who have different invertebrates and plants named after them just for the hell of it there's a popular not i guess not super popular it's a huntsman spider with really like frilly bright yellow hair the species name is david bowie i named after david bowie kind of looks like the the ziggy stardust harry's got going on and i know there's a couple insects named after obama as well that's fantastic and a beetle named after hitler those do exist yes When it's something small, I don't care. Name it after whatever you want. If it's like a gorilla, then I think we should go with your more traditional naming system, something that describes the species. Like gorilla, gorilla, gorilla? (laughs) It gets the point across. Uh, Anyways, he found that many different pitcher plants in this expedition, but what's odd about the Penthes loei is that rather than opening like a jar, it was shaped more like an hourglass. Okay. It had a broad opening that quickly narrowed in the middle and then opened up again in the lower compartment. This was different compared to most other pitchers because the narrow midsection meant that it might be possible for potential prey items to just climb out. I mean, if you had a glass and you constricted the middle like an hourglass, you can't fall all the way to the bottom as easily. You got a little spot to grab on and maybe even get out. I mean, true, but if you do fall through, it makes it that much harder to get back out, right? I guess, but you have to squeeze through. I feel like you can kind of prop yourself there, you know? I mean, how big of an opening are we talking here? I, exact measurements, I don't know, but you can see it's very thin comparatively. I mean, can the insects like comfortably fall through or do they need a little bit of grease? They might need a little bit of grease. I mean, the plant has no way to like swallow them. It doesn't have any mechanisms. There's no sphincter action going on. 
That's true. Probably for the best. Yeah, probably. Why is it for the best? I don't want to see that. <laughs> I thought you going to say people would develop alternative uses for pitcher plants. I don't want to see that either. <laughs> so this seemed off at the time because, you know, that little sphincter in the middle that might hurt the plant's chances of obtaining crucial nitrogen sources that might inhibit it. A little weird. It also seemed to have a less waxy interior and a more rigid structure. Again, a little weird. You would want it to be very waxy so the prey just kind of falls in. Had most of his pitchers higher up, growing few near the ground. And lastly, the flat leaf that's on top of the pitcher was at an almost 90 degree angle, meaning it wasn't really functional in keeping out any debris or unwanted material. You see a lot of pitchers, the lid on top, it's kind of at like more of a 45 degree angle, but this one's just straight up in the air. And this confused the scientist until he went home, went to the bathroom and went, hey, <laughs> who left the seat up? Jesus Christ. And you didn't even flush. And then inspiration hit him squarely in the middle of the sphincter. Oh, no, he thought nothing of it. <laughs> you know, it was just a little weird. And he was like, all right, this is something. Despite all these seeming disadvantages, you know, the plant still grew very large with tendrils reaching up to 40 feet long. Oh, wow. These are big boys. Oh, these are big. Like I said, they can climb trees so they can really branch out. That's still impressive, though. That's still very impressive. And of course, some specimens were obtained and taken back to the Royal Botanical Gardens. Came its own species in 1859. And for the following years, scientists more or less ignored the plant. It was featured in a lot of publications, but it was always just a footnote. This plant's weird. And then kind of moving on. You have your list of all the Nepenthes. There's many, many species. This is a weird one. And then they just keep going on. So it's still kind of perplexed scientists with its weird pitcher morphology. And no one's really sure of its purpose until about 100 plus years later, the scientist E.J.H. Corner made discovery of Nepenthes loei in the wild. And he noticed something. He saw a tree shrew was licking something on the inside of the lid of the pitcher plant. He thought it was some snail eggs that happened to just be laid on the inside of the plant. <laughs> thought nothing of it. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> About 30 years later, it was found that the Penthes loei actually produced this sugary white substance on the inside of its lid. This was documented in the Royal Botanical Gardens, or a botanical garden, where they saw the plant was making this itself. And they noticed it was kind of a sweet smelling liquid, bit odd. Reasoning for this unknown, but he debunked the previous theory that the tree shrew was eating snail eggs off the lid of this plant. So some theories are being put forward at the time about all these weird observations and traits. But the one guy to put it all together was Dr. Charles Clark. After an observation of finding feces inside the pitcher plants, everything started coming together. The gears started turning. The puzzle pieces are landing in place. The odd <laughs> shape, the sugary substance on the lid, the low amount of pitchers near the ground, the tree shrews near the plant, and finally the turds inside the pitchers. <laughs> Nepenthes loei had evolved to become a living toilet plant. Oh my gosh. Talk about degrading. I'm I'm sorry. That's just, wow. I mean, you do what you gotta do, but Jesus Christ. So the team had found that the young plants may develop your typical carnivorous pitchers to catch invertebrate prey, but the adults almost fully specialize in obtaining their nutrients from tree shrew feces, and this makes up about 57 to 100% of all obtained nitrogen. You're saying that 
these pitcher plants initially try to be carnivorous and then at a certain point hit a midlife crisis and decide, screw it, I'm going to become a toilet. So they start off on the ground and as plant gets taller and grows like along a tree and the pitchers go up higher, those become the toilets for the tree shrews where they found the trees. Uh... But there's no real tree shrews on the bottom. So you're more likely to find these toilet pitchers up top than you are the bottom. So it's not necessarily that they fail at being carnivorous. It's that they start carnivorously and then aspire to become toilets yes. once they reach a certain height. <laughs> yes, they, the toilet lifestyle just works so well for them. They have to build up to it. You know, you have to pay your dues before <laughs> you can get to the higher levels. Jesus. It's like if Roto-Rooter was a species. It's terrible. So it's thought that in this mountain range, these are in the mountains, they're in the highlands, the higher elevation means lower amounts of potential invertebrate prey because it is colder. But if you go right. down further, of course, there's more options. So in the penthes that are found higher up have less invertebrate prey to work with. So as these plants mature, they stop developing their carnivorous pitchers on the ground and kind of switch to their specialized toilet pitchers at higher elevations where the tree shrews are. So like I said, they have to pay their dues. They have to work up to it. And the reason for these weirdly shaped pitchers is because they have co-evolved alongside these tree shrews to act as the perfect spot to poop. The strange shape actually allows the shrews to sit kind of perfectly when they do their business in the plants. And there's an entire study on this, and I love the way they worded their research. Here it goes. We tested the hypothesis that the pitcher geometry in these feces trapping species, in quotations, <laughs> is related to the body size of T. montana, aka the tree shrews, as a fecal capture depends on the tree shrews hindquarters being positioned correctly over the pitcher <laughs> orifice whilst the animal feeds on the lid exudates. <laughs> This is the scientific way of saying the plant has to be built right or else the shrew shit leaks down the side instead of going in the hole. <laughs> and this, they could have just said the same thing. All they're you basically, can't put that in a research paper. They can't. All they're really saying is, hey guys, we've discovered a tiny herbivorous squatty potty. <laughs> And the study found in the Penthes loei, the shrew's orifice matched that of the pitcher almost perfectly. Of course it did. So the pitcher's weird constricted middle, which kind of inhibits carnivory, you know, it, it's not as open for more prey animals to fall in. It kind of acts as a way for the shrews to avoid slipping and falling in. The same reason for why it lacks the really slippery surfaces that allow insects to fall in. If the shrew falls in, it probably wouldn't die. I mean, the shrew is probably capable of getting itself out. The pitchers aren't super huge. But if you fell into a porta potty, it'd probably ruin your day. Personally, I wouldn't want to go back to that toilet. No main source of food. I don't think you really have a choice. No, no, you definitely make the shrews happy. But now the question remains, why do the tree shrews like to use this plant? I mean, it's because they get a nice sugary snack, right? Exactly. How I mentioned earlier, they were documented licking the bottom of the lid of the pitcher. They produce a little sugary snack for the shrews to enjoy. I think there might be some evidence that is also a laxative, but I think that hypothesis is still being kind of, you know, they're, they're still testing the water with that one. So this is basically like me eating a popsicle on the toilet. Yeah. Huh. 
So the lids are actually even brightly colored, perhaps to attract shrews to the pitcher. The one hypothesis is that due to a scarcity of fruit-bearing trees and high elevation, tree shrews up in the highlands rely more on these pitchers as a source of nectar, where in lower elevations where you can't really find these plants, they don't because they don't need to. So this is kind of an alternative food source, and it'd be really interesting to see how much of these sugary secretions makes up the tree shrew diets. But I do not know that. Yeah, that would be very interesting to know. Do the tree shrews do this because it's just really convenient for them and the pitchers have made it that way? Or is this really like an example of co-evolution between shrew and plant toilet? Now, they definitely get something. I mean, they get a little sugary snack and that's energy for them. But I just want to know how how much. Is this just like a little gumdrop or is this a whole banquet they're getting, you know? The best way to put this in human terms is if you were out in the woods and you spotted a toilet with this lid up and you see that there's a Jolly Rancher taped to the bottom of the toilet (laughs) lid. So you sit facing the lid to do your business and all while you're enjoying a free snack at the same time. I wouldn't say that's quite accurate because it takes a lot less time for me to eat a Jolly Rancher than it does for me to poop. So there's got to be like a whole ass ice cream cone on there that I can lick, <laughs> you, gotta lick you know? Fast. Okay, so we'll go with your popsicle analysis. Yeah, there's just a popsicle yeah. duct taped to the bottom of this <laughs> toilet lid. Exactly. Eat it up. Exactly. Lick to your heart's content and make your toilet very happy. <laughs> Don't tell the health inspector. <laughs> And the craziest part out of all this is that there are more toilet pitcher plants out there. Oh, really? Yeah. Actually, there might be many more. As we're kind of looking more into this, it's clear that this has evolved several times independently. In addition to Penthes loei, there are at least two other species in the same genus and location that have been found to consume tree shrew turds. With these plants, they also eat some insects. Now, one of these Nepenthes, it has one of the largest pitchers. Like I said, it can get up to a foot tall. Remember how I said that there was possible a chance of a rat being found in a pitcher? This is coming to question because the observation wasn't recorded super well. It's thought that maybe it wasn't a rat. It might have been a tree shrew. And the tree shrew might have actually been using the toilet and then just died. The tree shrew pulled an Elvis. (laughs) Crapped its heart out. Gave way on the can. It's not a good look. Principal had to call home, tell the mom, yeah, yeah, music teacher thinks we got a real Elvis on our hands. (laughs) Yeah, we found him dead on the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, he's imitating the wrong period of his life. (laughs) So that whole rat eating thing, that might not be true. That might have just been a misidentified tree shirt that just, you know, had a heart attack on the can. I don't think it drowned in the pitcher. I think they'd be pretty capable of working their way out. It's not super big compared to the tree shrew. Right. And like I said, you wouldn't really want to be eating the animals that are giving you nutrients. You know, you're killing your cash cow there. Biting the butthole that feeds. And like I said, these couple species are all found in the same range. And I believe they can even hybridize with each other. But there's actually more Nepenthes plants that are moving away from carnivory. So one species is found to consume mostly dead leaves just on the forest floor. The lid is just straight open and it doesn't really feed on insects. Most of its nutrients comes from just foliage that falls in. I mean, it certainly will feed on insects that fall in there, but it just doesn't need to. And it's only like a few inches off of the forest floor. Yeah, this is a low growing one. 
Okay. There's another one that actually has a modified leaf to allow ants to live inside of it. And the ants that are found in it are called diving ants. They will have insects that fall in and the ants will dive in, grab the prey insects, and then they'll work their way back out. And the plant actually feeds on ant droppings for the most part instead, because that's easier to digest. Wait, but how do the ants avoid getting trapped? They just co-evolved. They can just work their way out. So the ants have like little like gripping mechanisms on their feet? All ants do, but maybe these ones are just built different. Or maybe there's a little ladder on the side that everyone else is missing. (laughs) There's another species that has evolved to be, this is still a picture, it's evolved to be just the perfect habitat for a small species of bat. There's a whole study that shows it's just shaped perfectly, that the bats just love to sit inside it. You know, it's a real cozy little structure, and these are tiny bats, just like an inch or two. And they roost inside during the day and they poop into the pitcher. And then at night, they go out and do their bad things. So the pitcher just essentially has to provide, I was going to say room and, yeah, room and board. That's all it has to do. No, just just room. Yeah, just room. Just room. Nope, you just, nope, just no board. There. No board. You get nothing. You got to feed yourself. Take a shit on the floor. And there's a number of animals, including several flies, ants, and even one species of crab that live inside these pitcher plants. And the pitcher plants live off of their waste products? Sometimes the pitcher lives off their waste products. Sometimes it's more of a commensalism situation where the animals are you know, just using it and not in there long. I guess they have special adaptations. Well, they definitely have aquatic adaptations. These are usually larvae that are living it. So the animals that fall in it and die are usually ones that don't have these adaptations. And it is a very weak acid. It's not like you can stick your finger in and it'll burn it right to the bone. I mean, this is a very long-term digestive process. In fact, if too many insects fall into the pitcher, that can kill the pitcher. Really? How? It just gets too rotten. When that happens, sometimes flies will come in and then lay eggs and their larvae will live inside the pitcher and eat all that rotting insect carcasses. The weird thing is just so many examples of these plants which are carnivorous plants kind of not being carnivores it gets you into a lot of gray areas like are these omnivore plants now or are they just half carnivores right are they just being opportunistic it seems that there are some that are definitely carnivores i'm just talking the penthes here now there are others like tried and true they're definitely carnivores venus flytrap for example that is perfectly adapted to catch a fly that's definitely a carnivore. With Nepenthes, it seems that a lot of species are kind of making us scratch our head and go, eh, I don't know about this one. Especially when there's a lot of animals that can just live inside them. It seems that some of them, like, they all were carnivorous to some extent, but then some of them found more cost-effective ways of getting the nutrients they need. Like they've adapted to changing environments. I mean, not everyone can be a carnivore. You have to specialize or find your own thing. Or maybe just become a home for someone else and live off their crap. Open an Airbnb and I don't know if they like the best analysis. You open an Airbnb and someone poops gold. <laughs> You're just an Airbnb for the golden goose. That, that lays golden eggs, not golden turds. Yeah, that's about it. Just one last thing I have to mention. If these plants interest you at all, I would strongly suggest looking into keeping one. Besides Nepenthes, there's hundreds of different carnivorous plants available to keep, many of which have relatively easy care. I mentioned that there are some pitcher plants of the North America type, Saracenia, the ones that grow straight out of the ground, like a little clarinet. 
those can grow all the way up into Canada. They have specialized care, but they don't have hard care. You just have to know how to do it. I actually got to tour a local carnivorous plant nursery in Maryland. It's just called the carnivorous plant nursery, but it was super cool. And I got to see all kinds of unique and cool plants a while ago. I definitely recommend checking out a local one if you have any interest. Yeah, definitely. It sounds awesome. And that's my piece. The Penthes loei, the toilet plant. So I kind of went on a similar track in the end. That wasn't my initial thought because my initial thought for doing a plant episode was to talk about aquatic plants. There are a lot of cool ones. Exactly. And they don't get enough attention, at least not compared to terrestrial plants. You know, when you think of underwater ecosystems, people think of the fish, crabs, and whales found in the water. They don't really think of the photosynthesizers that make the whole thing work. Although that was my original intent was to, you know, shed light on things like kelp and submerged aquatic vegetation and maybe even like branch out and do some kind of algae or diatom. What I found during my research went a little bit beyond just kind of finding out what plants can survive in SpongeBob's garden. The plant I have chosen to discuss is the bladderwort. That's a carnivorous one also. It is. So this is a carnivorous plant episode. Exactly. It is a carnivorous plant episode. I'll get into it a little bit more later, but the bladderworts kind of fall under the same umbrella as the pitcher plant in terms of how they approach being carnivorous. But first, I want to address the name. Bladderwort is pretty unusual and a bit unfortunate, if you ask me. Yeah, tell me about it. It's my nickname in the second grade. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound like the name of a plant, but rather the name of a really bad urinary tract infection. (laughs) As it turns out, lots of plants have names ending with the suffix wort, which is derived from an old English word meaning plant or herb. So there are a lot of plants, you know, liverworts and so forth that have wort on the end. As far as bladderworts themselves, you know, regardless of what they are called, bladderworts are small plants with bright yellow flowers. In spite of my original intent with this episode, many bladderworts actually live on land, but those ones tend to live in very saturated soil. The fully aquatic ones tend to live their lives suspended in shallow, calm water of lakes and ponds. Some do live in streams, but again, they live in like eddies, they don't live in the rapids. The ones that live aquatically are completely unattached to the muddy substrate beneath them in many cases. What is unusual upon first examining a bladderwort is that the plant's stems are covered with these tiny little sacs or bladders. And the bladders themselves are pretty small. They're less than half an inch wide in diameter in pretty much all bladderwort species. And their function was highly debated for decades, if not centuries. Many thought for years that the bladders served as flotation devices for the plant. This was actually disproven by, of all people, Charles Darwin, who at one point cut all the bladders off of one plant and found that the plant didn't sink. That's what I was going to say. Did he just go and punch a couple of holes in them? Yes, that's basically what he did. He took up bladderwort, cut all the little sacks off the sides and looked at it and said, oh, it's not sinking. I guess they're not flotation devices. Like, that's just the kind of tedious, arguably useless work. You don't even have to do a whole research paper about that one. I mean, I'd just give it to him. A lot of people would hear that story and go, why? Why do I care whether or not these are flotation devices? But I would hear that story and go, that's awesome. You're following your passions. You know, you're exploring your curiosities. It's the equivalent of finding butterflies. I'm like, huh, I wonder if the wings are what make them fly. So you just (laughs) pluck them all off. Except that after the wings were plucked off, the butterflies could still fly. So yes, this is why I love naturalists and zoologists, because they're doing this stuff just because they're curious, not because they have some kind of ulterior motive. Darwin was then the first person to propose 
a more, I would say, a more correct function of these bladders, which is that they were used to ensnare and digest prey. Now, these bladders are very small, so the kind of prey we're talking about are small invertebrates, mosquito larvae, that type of thing. As far as what we now know, the bladderwort plant actively works to pump water out of the sac so that there's a kind of vacuum contained within. Each sac has a single trap door on one section, and the opening is held in place by a lever on the inside. On the outside of the trap door, there are a series of trigger hairs, and should a small prey animal touch them, the mechanism removes the lever from the trap door, and the prey is sucked into the sac, after which the door slams shut again. Prey is basically just vacuum sealed directly into the little bladder. And all of this happens in a fraction of a millisecond, about a hundred times faster than a Vetus flytrap. That's pretty quick. It's very quick. So just to kind of add a little bit of perspective here, think about how hard it is to swat a fly. You know, one lands on you, it's really annoying. You go to swat it and it just flies right away like it's nothing and you're, you miss by a mile. Then think about how quick a Venus flytrap has to be to catch that same fly after it lands in the trap. Then multiply that quickness by 100 and you have some idea of the predatory capability of a bladderwort. Pretty crazy, right? So plants have two ranges for movement, none at all, and <laughs> imperceptible. Exactly, or instantaneous. <laughs> There's no in-between. There isn't. It's, it's really crazy. But then, once the prey is trapped inside, it will either suffocate or starve to death. One of the two, whichever comes first. And then digestive enzymes will break them down, and the bladderwort can then metabolize the remains to capture whatever nutrients it isn't getting from its environment. Much like the pitcher plants, a lot of bladderworts live in environments where there's some kind of nitrogen or phosphorus deficiency. And this also helps make up for the fact that a lot of bladderworts don't have the kind of typical root system that you see in a lot of other plants, root systems which could help capture nitrogen and phosphorus from their environment. Instead, they get it from their prey. So all this is pretty crazy right? You have this tiny little bladder that's capturing prey in tiny fraction of a second. Now, let me make it even crazier, because studies of the microbiological communities of bladderwort traps revealed communities similar to those found in digestive organs of a cow, or where complex plant material is broken down by bacteria. So, it is thought that some bacteria within the traps helps break down plant matter, which gets sucked in when the trap opens, providing additional food for the bladderwort. Okay, so this isn't saying that cows actually have these little bladders that will just presumably, you know, a bird goes by and just whomp, and we just haven't seen that happen yet. No, no, it's more like saying that these plants have many tiny little cow stomachs growing out of their stems. What's also remarkable is that there is very little methane detected leaving the traps. If you've been around cows, they belch a lot. A lot of the belch is just methane coming off of the cows from their digestive processes and you know the amount of chemical reactions that it requires to break down grass so the same kind of reactions are going on within a bladderwort sac but there's no methane leaving the sac so it has been hypothesized that there are other bacteria which help metabolize the methane within the bladder that's produced from these digestive processes which then would provide even more nutrients to the plant but that is just a hypothesis it is yet to be proven Okay, that's interesting, though. So the bladders really aren't eating maybe even like small invertebrates if they were carnivores? Yes, which they do. 
in that process, they would also tend to suck in, you know, little bits of algae and phytoplankton and things like that. They then have bacteria to also digest in addition to those little invertebrates. And then some people think that once those bits of algae are digested, the remaining methane can then be further metabolized by the plant, which is remarkable. It's like if you were able to gain sustenance from your own farts. Don't don't try that one at home. Yes. Do not try that. Do not try that at home at all. Nothing good can come of that. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just don't. Just don't. There's bound to be at least one Reddit article about <laughs> Elon Musk says you can use your farts for this. <laughs> one of the little, uh, like the clickbait ads you see at the bottom. <laughs> right alongside, you... like... If you're over 18 and live in Maryland, you must know about this tax law. Nine out of ten doctors don't want you to know about this special diet pill. <laughs> Parentheses, you eat farts. Right, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so as crazy as this all has been, let me just flip it on its head completely. Because it has even been found that some species of bladderwort supply the traps with nitrogen and phosphorus rather than extracting it as you might think well, why would they do that why indeed unfortunately this is the extent of our <laughs> definite knowledge of bladderwort traps because the exact dynamic of plant microbe interaction is not fully understood really and it varies from species of bladderwort and even between traps of different ages right so kind of like your pitcher plants younger sacs have completely different you know, microbial communities than older ones. We don't necessarily know in what situations they're being supplied with nitrogen or phosphorus or in what situations they're extracting nitrogen and phosphorus. We just know that in some cases, they are supplying nitrogen and phosphorus, whereas, you know, you would expect that these plants are just using these sacs to gain extra nutrients. But in some cases, they're supplying them with nutrients, and we don't yet fully understand why. I like how you said, you start off with, now, why would the sacs do this? He paused like, this isn't a rhetorical. I don't know. Anyone got any <laughs> exactly. good ideas? Yeah. Does anyone have any good? I couldn't find a definite answer I am answer open to this. the suggestions. I couldn't find a definite answer as to why bladderworts plying these sacks with nitrogen and phosphorus that by all accounts they should be taking from them. My best guess is that the traps of different species cultivate different microbial communities depending on their environment. So in rich nutrient areas, they can supply the bacteria with lots of nitrogen and phosphorus to gain additional carbon to aid their growth, while in nutrient-poor areas, they can focus on extracting those nutrients. This makes sense to me, at least, because bladderworts are a very diverse group. They are over 200 different species worldwide. They're found on almost every imaginable environment. A strategy like this would make them extremely adaptable and allow them to survive in different conditions, because, you know, they're bladderworts that live... Here in Maryland, there are bladderworts that live in the tropics. There are bladderworts that even live frozen Arctic conditions and are a and are able to reduce themselves down to a, a little root ball that can freeze solid and then grow back in the summer. Because of how adaptable they are, having these kinds of complex nutrient exchange systems with these bladders would allow them to have that adaptability that they've demonstrated in over the course of their evolution. This hypothesis, at least as I see it, would allow us to have the bladderworts that we now have today. Okay. And like you said, there's so many species, I guess there could be a range of carnivory. Exactly. Just like the Nepenthes. Right. So different things that I've described over the course of this piece 
apply to some species, but not all. The best way that I can describe this piece is that most of what I have said applies to most bladderwort species. There are a huge range of them in various different shapes and sizes and colors, but the one thing they all have in common are these tiny little bladders that adorn their stems. It's just a question of what they use them for and how they operate, basically. Okay, so some of them are catching tiny little invertebrate prey animals, and some of them are taking in, like, algae. So what do you call a plant that eats algae? Are these herbivorous plants? Cannibals? I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's not the same species. Like, if a bear eats a rat, you don't say, hey, that's a cannibal, you know? But if a plant could describe that action, it might. But it's a plant. No, but if it could, a plant might go, that's a mammal eating a mammal. That's some cannibalism right there. That's you know? not cannibal. That's not how it works. It's got to be the same species. And how do you know that? How, have you ever talked to a plant, Aaron? I don't have to. I don't have to. That's <laughs> dumb. You don't see a guy eat a monkey and call him a cannibal. I mean, it's a little weird. I'll give it that. You say that as if you've watched a guy eat a monkey. I mean, we've all seen Indiana Jones and the <laughs> Temple of Doom. That's not a great example. <laughs> it's not. That doesn't count. <laughs> that was in the 80s. It has not aged well in the slightest. <laughs> Anyway, so what is your theory on bladderwort traps? I don't know. It sounds like I kind of agree with you where there's just a range of them. Like you said, it's over 200 species and every continent except Antarctica, pretty much. It sounds like there's so many environments that it'll, it just has to vary. And it sounds like even the ones that are carnivores that are targeting little invertebrate prey, they're going to get little bits of like phytoplankton at the same time. You can't avoid that. It's in the water. Right. It was a huge turn of events when I was doing research for this episode. And, you know, I was going with the same hypothesis that these bladders are just there to break down whatever comes inside, whether that's some unlucky invertebrate or whether that's phytoplankton or algae that happens to wind up in there. Then I saw another article that was talking about how bladder words actually supply them with nutrients. And that totally flipped things around for me. So now I'm not entirely sure what to think about them as a whole. But Whatever the case may be, they're really, really remarkable evolutionary devices, and it's clearly been very successful for bladderworts as a whole. I mean, they're still here. They're still alive and kicking. They're still here, and there are over 200 different species that live on every continent except Antarctica. So you can't deny that kind of success. Yeah, whatever they're doing, it's working. Exactly. It's working very, very well for them indeed. Actually, I read a little article, and it was called Proto-Carnivory. And like pseudo-carnivory in plants. So there's some where the idea is maybe they're evolving to be carnivores. And then there's some where it's like, well, we can't really tell if they're carnivores per se because they're kind of just getting a little bit of everything. And it's just a huge, there's a whole spectrum, the carnivory in plants. There's a whole other world. Like there is one species that is only a carnivore when it's a seed. And when it's a seed and it's slowly developing, so in the very early stages of life, it will actually kind of trap nematodes, which is a very tiny worm, and it can Mm -hmm. digest and use them for nutrients, but only in like one life stage. And it doesn't continue doing this at all? It doesn't really need to. I mean, once it it kind of develops, it's just fine. Like I said, there's a lot of examples in many different plants, sometimes where Mm -hmm. you least expect it. Once it fully develops, grows up, and has gone through puberty, it, it becomes a toilet. (laughs) maybe it does who knows (sighs) yeah i still can't get over that the life's ambition of that one pitcher plant is to become 
the plant example of a Cleveland steamer. You know how you see memes where a mom would point at like a janitor or a plumber and say, you know, if you don't get good grades in school, that's going to end up being you. Well, a maintenance guy or a plumber that's in a union is probably making better money than you. Probably, yeah. <laughs> they make a good living. Yeah, it's not a bad living. Not at all. Plumbers make a lot of money, guys. They make a lot of money. Which, I've said it before. I can live with my lights being out. <laughs> it's this thing again. I can live with my lights being out for at least one day. I can make it without Wi-Fi. I've got books to read. I can keep myself entertained. But if my toilet doesn't flush, that needs to be fixed now. That means you have to start growing in the Penthes plant. <laughs> I wonder if they come with little air fresheners somewhere around the rim, you know? Well, they got the sugary lids. Maybe if you kind of just spritz it into the air, you know? Maybe that could work. Yeah, maybe that's how it works. I don't know. Yeah, we have to selectively breed these to be just giant eco toilets you know like you'll find uh rvs or maybe not rvs usually cabins they'll have like the compost toilets yeah kind of the same thing we exactly. can breathe these to just be massive i mean we did it with great danes we can do it with nepenthes why not they, they already get at least a foot tall I mean, yeah and, and let's just make sure we breed them to have a little holder there for the yankee candle that you can light after you're done <laughs> I was also going to say, make them sturdy. You don't want to <laughs> sit on that thing and break through and have everything leak out. <laughs> you don't want to wind up like that poor little tree shrew. <laughs> All right. So what are you thinking for next episode? Next episode. So I will say next episode will fall just after Valentine's Day. So like, I don't know, Valentine's themed. I mean, we already did courtship. We could do, like, parental care in animals. No, Aaron, we do that nine months after Valentine's Day. <laughs> so what if instead of just doing courtship, we talked about monogamy? They're very different things. Okay, yeah, that's quite a bit rarer. Yes, because monogamy is pretty rare in, in the animal kingdom. Okay, that, that's going to be a tough one. I'll really scour around for that. But I'm interested to see what you come up with. I, I am too, because I can't think of many examples. I can think of one example, but people don't want to hear me rant about swans again. So let's <laughs> not go there. <laughs> well, I remember in uh, animal behavior class in college, there was a whole like part of a lecture where he talked about all these animals that were seemingly monogamous, but they actually cheated all the time. Oh, yeah. But they kind of just let it slide. Both parties cheated. Everyone was cheating. Bird species like crazy, like fairy wrens. Don't even get into fairy wrens. I mean, they can fly. How easy is it to have an affair? You just you're gone, you know? Yeah, exactly. You got Southwest mounted on your back. You can go wherever you want to go. All right. So that's what we'll do next episode. Monogamy. All right. Well, we'll make it work. Exactly. Bring a friend to come listen to the show with you. It's a great date night. It is. Just a uh, dark room, just the two of you. You just sit there. Yeah, maybe, you know, get a bottle of wine, some chocolates. <laughs> There's some nothing more romantic than an intimate <laughs> moment shared with two people. With two other people just talking in the background. No, 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 no. We're in the foreground. The smooth jazz is in the background, Aaron. Come on. If you enjoy this episode, please give us a review and follow on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can find us at Soup Pot Podcast on Twitter.com 
or you can email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. All right. Sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya.